Contrary to common assumptions, Jesus was not so much the answer man as He was the question man. As we read through the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus asked way more many questions than He answers. In fact, more often than not, when Jesus was asked a question, guess what we've learned? He asked a question in return. And if we add them all up, Jesus asked some 307 questions in the four Gospels. Now this morning as we continue our series of lessons, questions Jesus asked, we come to the prayer question here in Matthew chapter 26. Couldn't you keep watch with me for one hour? Questions Jesus asked. Let's take a closer look at the prayer question here in Matthew 26. And before we dig into today's text, I just want to pause one more time. This time I want to ask God to speak with us clearly this morning. Would you pray with me? God, open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our minds to understand, and most of all, our hearts to receive the truth that you want to teach us today. And may that truth not give us more information, but may it give us transformation, that it would change our lives, that we would be more Christ-like, more the people you desire us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, follow along in your Bible as I read. Matthew chapter 26, we're going to pick it up with verse 36. Then Jesus went with His disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And He said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with Him, and He began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. By the way, this same story is also told in Mark 14 and Luke 22 and John 18. It's Thursday night, the night before Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus has just finished eating the Passover, what we call the Lord's Supper, Last Supper, with His apostles in the upper room. Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, has departed to go and make arrangements with the Jewish religious leaders to betray Jesus into their hands. And so now it's Jesus and the eleven. And Matthew 26 and verse 30 tells us, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. It's very late at night. In fact, most scholars agree it was after midnight, probably 1 or 2 a.m. actually on Friday morning. 
In John 18, in verse 1, we read, Jesus left with His disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. The brook Kidron flowed through a deep ravine just to the east of the Temple Mount. And rising on the other side of the Kidron is the Mount of Olives. And on this mount is a, an olive grove. And inside this olive grove, there is a garden called the Garden of Gethsemane. This garden and some of the very same olive trees, by the way, are still present even today. Now the parallel passage in Luke 22 verse 39 tells us, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and His disciples followed Him. Don't miss those words, as usual. In truth, Jesus frequented the Mount of Olives, in particular the Garden of Gethsemane, on a number of occasions when He was involved in and around Jerusalem in ministry. It was a place of retreat, a quiet haven of solitude where Jesus would often come to pray. And facing His impending arrest, trial, and crucifixion, Jesus then comes, as usual, to this place of prayer once again. Now with that background, let's work our way through Matthew 26 verses 36 through 46 together, beginning of course with verse 36. The text says, Then Jesus went with His disciples to a place called Gethsemane. Now I've got to pause here for a moment and talk about this word Gethsemane. Literally, the word means olive oil press. In New Testament times, olive oil was the staple of everyday life for cooking, for lighting, for medicines and salves, for anointing oil, for perfume and incense, and much, much more. In fact, I wanted to show you this picture. I've stood in this very spot. This is an olive operation, if you will, in Capernaum that existed back in the time of Jesus. It's an actual olive business, if you will. When the olives were picked, they were first processed by a millstone, as you can see there on the left side of this photo. The olives were dumped into the base, a pole was inserted through the hole in the millstone, and then someone or some animal would walk around and around and around, pushing the pole as the millstone would crush the olives. The trough would then fill with olive pulp. The pulp would then be scooped out and put into burlap sacks and they would be moved over to the object you see on the right side of the picture, which is called a Gethsemane. The olive oil press itself was a very large vertical stone weighing well over a thousand pounds generally. And it was called a Gethsemane. It would be lifted up, usually by a pulley system. Then a number of the sacks of the pulp would be placed in the indentation in the ground underneath there. And the Gethsemane would be slowly and carefully lowered so as not to bruise the olives onto the sack and would begin slowly pressing the pulp until the olive oil was squeezed out. You see a little trough there, it would come out that little front of that and it would flow into that trough and then it would be scooped out with a jar. And that's how they collected the olive oil. Now I tell you all of that because I want you to understand the imagery of Gethsemane. 
This is an amazing picture of Jesus' suffering. The weight of the sins of all of humankind pressed down upon Him. In fact, Isaiah prophesied about it this way, Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. It was the Lord's will to crush Him and cause Him to suffer. Keep that in mind, that word picture, as we work our way through our verses in today's text. Verse 36 concludes, And He said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. Which brings us to verses 37 and 38. Verse 37 begins, He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with Him. And so Jesus' instructions at the end of verse 36 were intended for the other eight apostles. He told them, sit here, we would assume at the entrance to the garden, while I go over there, probably pointed, and pray. And then he took Peter, James, and John, his inner circle of three, his very best and most trusted friends. He wanted them with him, you understand, during this most difficult time of his life. And verse 37 ends. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Now can you see it? Can you feel it? The Gethsemane is beginning to press down upon Him. The weight of what is about to happen is starting to crush Him. So much so that Jesus admits in verse 38, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Don't miss that. To the point of death. The very life is being squeezed out of him. He is being crushed. He is in deep anguish. I don't believe it's because Jesus hates the thought of the physical pain and suffering he's about to do. I think it's because of the thought of the wrath of God that he is going to take upon himself for your sin and mine. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. Literally, Jesus is saying, I'm drowning That's what the word means. I'm drowning with sorrow, with grief, with distress. How serious is it? Enough to kill me, Jesus says. That's what He says. To the point of death. Now, He obviously didn't want to face this alone because He says to Peter, James, and John, stay here and keep watching with me. Would you just pray with me for a while? That's what He tells them. In fact, Luke 22, verse 40, words it this way, pray that you will not fall into temptation. That's what Jesus was praying, by the way, that He wouldn't fall into temptation. The temptation to avoid the cross. Which brings us to verse 39. Verse 39 says, Going a little farther. Luke 22, verse 41 reads, A stone's throw. Beyond, I don't know how far you can toss a stone, 20, 30 yards maybe. So, Peter, James, and John, you stay here. I'm going to go just a little bit further. And it says he, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed. Now, Luke twenty two forty one says he knelt down and prayed. Some people said, see, the Bible isn't consistent. Hello. What happened? He got to his knees and he couldn't stay there. He had to fall on his face. I mean, that's really what happened. He just couldn't take it. He just put it on the front. 
Thanks. <laughs> he fell with his face to the ground, prostrate before God, and poured out his heart in prayer. And what did Jesus pray? Verse 39 continues, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Mark 14, verse 36 adds Jesus' more intimate address to His Father, Abba, Aramaic for Daddy. If it is possible, if, if there is another way, I don't think He's trying to say, Father, I take it all back. I don't want to do this. I don't think that's what He was saying. I think He's simply asking, is there some other way we could do this? Does it have to be this way? May this cup be taken from me. The symbolism of a cup is significant. Earlier in the upper room, when Jesus was instituting the Lord's Supper, communion, He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. That cup, there were four cups in the Passover. That cup in the upper room would have been the cup of redemption in the Passover meal. Okay? However, the cup that's referred to here in verse 39 would have been the cup of wrath in the Passover. It represents the fury of God over sin, the punishment of death for sin. Jesus is praying, My Father, Abba, Daddy, if it's possible, may this cup of wrath be taken from me. Jesus is not wanting to suffer the weight, the Gethsemane, of God's wrath. And yet he finishes his prayer, not as I will, but as you will. You see, Jesus came to do the Father's will. You understand that, right? And if this cup was it, then he would do it. That's commitment. <laughs> That's complete and perfect Obedience. In fact, later with resolve, Jesus would say in John 18, 11, Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is, well, yeah, I'm going to drink it. I'm going to do it. We'll come back to that in a moment. But that brings us to verses 40 and 41. Verse 40 begins, Then He returned to His disciples and found them sleeping. We would take that to mean, of course, Peter, James, and John. In fact, he asked Peter directly, couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? This is the prayer question right here. We'll think more through the implications of this question in just a bit. But for right now, let me just point out that this gives us the intensity of Jesus' prayer in verse 39. One hour. Did you catch that? Jesus had been on His face before God for one hour already, pouring out His heart, sensing the Gethsemane crushing down upon Him, crying out to His Father Abba in anguish over this cup of wrath that He was about to experience. Now, we really shouldn't be too harsh on Peter, James, and John for sleeping. After all, it was the early hours of Friday morning after a very long and exhausting week of ups and downs. Luke 22, verse 45 helps us to understand the circumstances even better. It says, He found them asleep exhausted from sorrow. Don't miss those words. Exhausted from sorrow. You know what that means? It means they cried themselves to sleep. Isn't that interesting? 
Whatever energy was left, they spent it all on tears and weeping. Why? Because in their minds, everything was going wrong. All their dreams of a kingdom were unraveling. Jesus was about to die. He had told them plainly so. Judas was off plotting to betray Him. They knew where He had gone. And everything they thought was supposed to happen wasn't happening. It was falling apart. They cried themselves to sleep. And yet Jesus challenges them in verse 41. Once again, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so we come to verses 42 through 44. I want you to go back to your Bible with me on this one. Follow along as I read it one more time. Verse 42, He went away a second time and prayed, My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may Your will be done. When He came back, He again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So He left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. And so... Understand that Jesus prays a second time, returns to find His disciples still sleeping. Then He prays a third time, saying the same thing. Got to understand here, folks, that these two times of prayer were just as heavy, they were just as intense as the first. These second and third hours of prayer were just as agonizing for Him as the first hour of prayer, to the point of Death. In fact, between the second and third prayer times, Luke 22 verse 43 tells us that an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. It seems Jesus needed that divine intervention to even be able to survive physically through this ordeal. And Luke 22 and verse 44 continues, Being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. The Greek word here is thrombos, from which we get our English word thrombosis. Sweat like blood. I understand that when very excruciating anguish is experienced, the resulting strain can actually cause the subcutaneous capillaries to dilate and even burst so that blood and sweat are exuded from the skin together. Doesn't happen very often. Very rare, but it happens. And it can happen all over the body, giving a red color to the beads of sweat as they roll down. Now the writer of Hebrews fills in the gaps by telling us in Hebrews 5 and verse 7, He offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Don't miss that phrase, fervent cries and tears. Literally in the Greek, it means loud wailing and sobbing. That's the words. Bitter, uncontrollable weeping. Again, picture Gethsemane. Crushing him. Well, let's wrap it up with verses 45 and 46. Look at them again in your Bible with me. It says, Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And when Jesus returns his third and final time to find Peter, James, and John still sleeping, notice that his resolve is totally different here. Do you notice that? He is now already 
won the victory. That's been decided. He has withstood this very last and greatest temptation. He has fully accepted the cup. He has defeated death. Death was defeated in Gethsemane. The rest of it was just obedience. He stands with bloody sweat on his face and dripping all over his clothing. He's bloodied, but he's unbowed. The victor courageously ready to face the cross. Look, he says, the hour has come. Rise, let us go. He's not saying let's run away. No, he's saying let's go to them. Look, right there through the olive trees. Here they come. See the torches? Let's go meet them. Whoa. I'm ready for this. That's what he's saying. And where did that renewed strength and determination come from? It came from three hours of spending time on his face before God in prayer. Well, that's a look at the Scripture. Now, what lessons can we learn from the prayer question today? Today's text is so full of deep abiding truths. But I'd like for us to zero in on verse 40 again. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? The good news translates the question this way. How is it that the three of you were not able to keep watch with me for even one hour? I call it the prayer question. And as I studied through these verses this past week, the Holy Spirit impressed upon me a few practical lessons about prayer. First, let's talk about some prayer busters. Some things that keep us from becoming the people of prayer that Jesus desires for us to be. The first among those would be a smug well-being. A smug well-being. Why don't we keep watch? Why don't we watch and pray as Jesus asks and expects of us? I believe the first thing that keeps us from becoming the people of prayer that Jesus desires us to be is a smug sense of our own well-being. Call it what you will. Self-reliance? Independence? A little bit of arrogance? We think we're better off than we actually are. We're deceived and deluded into believing, I don't really need prayer. I can handle this on my own. (laughs) I'll fix it. Just give me a little bit of time here. I'll get it all taken care of. Yeah. Peter demonstrated this smug well-being both before and after today's text. In fact, if you have your Bible still open, I hope you do, turn back with me to Matthew 26 and verse 31. Remember verse 30 told us they sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So they've had the Passover, they have the Last Supper, now they're on their way to the Mount of Olives. They're on their way up the hill to the garden, okay? And they're talking as they go. What are they talking about? Well, it tells us, verse 31, Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, Zechariah 13, 7, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter, look at verse 33, Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Jesus says in verse 34, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, verse 35, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And notice what it says. 
All the other disciples said the same. Peter led the way, but it was everyone. Can you see a smugness here? (laughs) Jesus, I got this. You can count on me. I can handle this. Even if I have to die, I'm going to stay faithful to you. uh, you I'm in a good place here, you know. That's not the only place. Look after the story. Remember, of course, Judas and the temple guard arrived to arrest Jesus. and Judas had arranged a sign, remember, I'm going to kiss him and that's the guy you need to take. And so Judas does that. Verse 49, greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And then Jesus replied, verse 50, do what you came for, friend. And the men stepped forward, the temple guard stepped forward, seized Jesus and arrested him. And with that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. I don't think he was aiming for his ear. (laughs) I think he was aiming for his head and he missed. Well, he hit part of his head. You know that story, right? Who was that? It was Peter. John 18 verse 10 tells us it was Peter. In fact, Jesus rebuked him in, in verse 11. He says, put your sword away. And here's that verse. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? That's a rhetorical question. Yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm ready for it. But the whole point here is that Peter was trying to fight a spiritual battle with a carnal weapon. Don't miss that. It's the futility of trying to fix it with our own human resources. They had missed what Gethsemane was all about. The spiritual battle that was raging at that very moment. They missed it all. And Peter tried to take it in his own hands. He tried to fix it. (laughs) I wonder, could there be a little bit of Peter in each one of us? Oh, we try to fix it. We think we're doing okay. In fact, read this verse out loud with me. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. Let's read it together. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Yeah. I've got this, I can handle it. The reason I know this is a problem with us is because prayer for us is certainly not the first resort. And in fact, sometimes it's not even the last resort. Sometimes we think we can do it all on our own. We don't need prayer. I can fix this. I can handle this. I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps, doggone it. Watch out. So the first prayer ruster is a smug well-being. second one I see is a spiritual weariness. A spiritual weariness. Why don't we keep watch? Why don't we watch and pray as Jesus asks and expects of us? I believe the second thing that keeps us from becoming the people of prayer that Jesus desires us to be is a, I don't know how else to describe it, but a spiritual weariness. Matthew 16, or 26 verse 40, He returned to His disciples and found them sleeping. Verse 43, when He came back, He again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. Verse 45, He returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? 
They were supposed to be watching and praying. But they fell asleep at their post. They were supposed to be guarding. They weren't very good guards. They snoozed right through what was probably next to the cross the most important moment of Jesus' life. Are we snoozing? So it prompted Jesus to ask the prayer question in verse 40. Couldn't you keep watch with me for one hour? And then Jesus challenges them and us in the next verse. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Yeah, we know that. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We're full of good spiritual intentions, aren't we? But our humanness, our carnal flesh is feeble and frail. I would put it this way. Frankly, we're so busy. We're too busy to pray. Our lives are so full. Too full. We're so weary and we're so exhausted all the time that we don't make the time, we don't take the time to really seriously pray. For most of us, the thought of one hour in prayer is completely beyond our comprehension. Like the disciples, we would fall asleep. We just sang a little bit ago, sweet hour of prayer. No, it's more like sweet two minutes of prayer. We wouldn't last five minutes. Could it be that Like the disciples, we really don't understand the urgency of what's at hand. Could it be that while the spiritual battle is raging all around us, we are just snoozing, we're oblivious to it all. The Apostle Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6 verses 11 and 12, So take everything the Master has set out for you, well-made armor and weapons of the best materials, and put them to use so you will be able to stand up to everything the devil throws your way. This is no afternoon athletic contest that we'll walk away from and forget about in a couple of hours. This is for keeps. A life or death fight to the finish against the devil and all his angels. And then he wraps it up in verse 18. Let's read this one out loud together. Would you read it with me? Prayer is essential in this ongoing warfare. Pray hard and long. Pray for your brothers and sisters. Keep your eyes open. Don't miss that. Keep your eyes open. Stay on guard. Be on watch. Don't fall asleep at your post. These end times that we are living in are not the times for us to be snoozing. The time's for us to be praying. And so the second prayer buster is spiritual weakness or weariness. Now let's talk about some prayer boosters. A couple of principles from today's text that will help us become the people of prayer that Jesus desires us to be. The first of which is a steady watch. Obviously that's the flip side of a spiritual weariness. Again, Jesus told Peter, James, and John in Matthew 26 verse 38, keep watch with me. Verse 41, watch and pray. This principle is what prompted Jesus to ask the prayer question, verse 40, couldn't you keep watch with me for one hour? By the way, did you know that this night, Passover night, was by God's decree and design a night to keep watch? 
When God initiated the first Passover in Egypt in Exodus 12 and verse 42, it tells us that God instructed the Israelites, this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. It's a night of watching. In fact, earlier in Exodus 12, verse 11, God had given instructions about the eating of the Passover meal. And He said, eat it with your traveling clothes on. Prepare for a long journey. Wear your walking shoes and carry your walking sticks in your hands. Eat it hurriedly. In other words, the Passover was to be celebrated with a sense of urgency. (laughs) A sense of readiness. A sense of watchfulness. Keep watch. Jesus used that phrase 19 times in the Gospel. This watchfulness, this steady watch, is to characterize our lives as Christ followers. Colossians 4 verse 2 urges us, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful. So what does that really mean, practically speaking? Well, certainly, whatever else it may mean, it implies regular, consistent prayer. Disciplined, daily prayer. The application here calls us to a steady watch. Let me just say this. That's not going to happen accidentally. That's going to happen because you purpose it to happen. Keeping watch happens because you intentionally decide to make it happen. We're talking here about a daily prayer time. I'm not talking about, you know, God is good, God is great, and we thank Him for our food before you eat, or now I lay me down to sleep before you go to bed at night. I'm talking about your prayer closet. I'm talking about going to the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane. We all need to have a prayer closet. We all need to take time every single day in our schedules to carve out some time for serious prayer. And that's not going to happen accidentally. That's only going to happen when we intentionally and purposefully say, I'm going to build this into my already busy schedule. I'm going to take the time to pray. And so the first prayer booster is a steady watch. The second is a surrendered will. A surrendered will. Again, Jesus prayed in Matthew 26 and verse 39, Yet not as I will, but as you will. And in verse 42, may your will be done. (laughs) See, Jesus was in full submission to His Father's will. And if you want to boost your prayer life, learn to pray like Jesus did. With a surrendered will. Sometimes, prayer changes circumstances. Sometimes we see situations in life change because we prayed about them. Sometimes God's miraculous power is released. But many times, God just gives us the strength through the difficult times. Rather than removing the difficulty, He gives us the strength to go through the difficulty. When the Apostle Paul prayed that this thorn in the flesh, whatever it was he had, be removed, God said, no! My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. God answered Paul's prayer, but he answered no. You keep the thorn in the flesh, Paul, and I'll give you the strength to persevere through it. And when Jesus prayed, if it is possible, may this cup 
be taken from me. God said, no. (laughs) No, you keep the cup. And I'll give you the strength to persevere through it. And in both cases, Paul and Jesus, it took a surrendered will. Not as I will, but as you will. May your will be done. That's how Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, didn't He? The model prayer. He said, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's read James 4, verse 15 out loud together. Would you read this with me? Your remarks should always be prefaced with, if it is the Lord's will, we will do so and so. That's how we need to live. A surrendered will. As it was in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus' prayers, not so much, hear me on this, prayer is not so much an exercise to change God's will as it is an exercise to change our will. Jesus needed Gethsemane, you understand that, to fully align Himself with the Father's will. He needed to wrestle with Gethsemane in order to get to the place where He was fully submitted to God's plan and purpose. A full surrender. And you and I need that in prayer too. Prayer is not so much to change God's mind as it is to change ours. Someone wrote, I prayed for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I asked for health that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I prayed for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel my need for God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing I prayed for, yet everything that I hoped for. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered, and I am among all people the most richly blessed. So the second prayer booster is surrendered well. Two prayer boosters, a smug well-being, Spiritual weariness, two prayer boosters, a steady watch, and a surrendered will. Questions Jesus asked. This morning we've considered the prayer question here in Matthew 26. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? Great question. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, teaching us again this morning exactly what we need to hear. I just feel like you're calling us to prayer in a deeper and greater way than ever before. Especially in these end times, in this Gethsemane, may we feel the weight and the pressure of that upon us. May we be on our faces before you, crying out for this lost world. Sensing the urgency the immediacy, the weight of where we are in life right now. Help us to be a people of prayer, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.